I began to be a writer as soon as I could read and write. In fact, I won a literary prize, only one in my whole life, and that was at the age of seven in a magazine called Little Folks, where I wrote a short story and I got my prize, which delighted me at the age of seven. And I tell you what it was. It was a rather dim, obscure sort of photograph of Derwent Water in the Lake District. I remember going with my mother on the bus to Boots, the chemist, to collect the prize, and I collected it, and it was in a parcel, and going back on the bus, and I sat on it by mistake. <laughs> when we got home, and I wanted to show it, my great prize to my sisters, all they could see was a whole lot of broken glass. <laughs> Hello and welcome. That was the voice of David Thompson, best known for Woodbrook, his classic account of Irish and Anglo-Irish life in Roscommon in the 1930s. Author, folklorist, historian and BBC radio producer, Thompson's other books included The People of the Sea in Camden Town and Nairn in Darkness and Light. He was a remarkable man who, in the words of Seamus Heaney, made intimates of his readers and invested care, delicacy and affection in this country. This year marks two anniversaries in relation to Thompson. It's the centenary of his birth and also marks 40 years since the publication of Woodbrook. An appropriate year then for a book on Thompson's own life and that comes in the handsome form of A Delicate Wildness, The Life and Loves of David Thompson, 1914 to 1988 by Julian Vignoles. As we'll hear, Thompson's life took a defining turn when in 1932, at the age of 18, as a student of history at Oxford, he became a tutor to the Kirkwood family of Woodbrook in County Roscommon. There he fell in love with one of the daughters of the house, Phoebe, seven years his junior, and this intense experience would colour the rest of his life. He also came to love the countryside and people of Ireland and developed an abiding interest in Irish history, life and culture. He was someone who drew lasting friendships, inspiring affection and respect in equal measure and from many quarters, as this poem, late in the day, by Seamus Heaney from his 2001 collection Electric Light testifies. Late in the day Sir William Wilde in his Beauties of the Boyne tells of a monk of Clonard working late how when his candle burnt out his quill pen feathered itself with a miraculous light so he could go on working. Shadow flit Ink gleam and quill shine. Late now in the day I need their likes. Freshets and rivulets starting from nowhere. Capillaries of joy frittered and flittering like the scimitar of cow piss in the wind that David Thompson flashed on my inner eye from the murky byre where he imagined himself a cow let out in spring smelling green weed up to his hips in grass. Dark-roomed David author of the memoir Nairn in Darkness and Light, whose injured eyes saw waves and waterfalls in young girls' hair, the glee of boyhood still alive and kicking in the tattered stickman I would meet and read a lifetime later, erotic fancy tickler, never more at home than when on the road, led by amazement as if it were a seal walking ahead of him up the iron shingle, in a claw-hammer coat and top hat, dressed to kill, about to enter a public house or kitchen the way he would himself, 
like Arion arriving in off the waves, off the dolphin's back, oblivious seeming, but taking it all in, and glad of another chance to believe his luck. Seamus Heaney there paying poetic tribute to David Thompson. And to consider Thompson, his life, his character, his work, I'm joined by Julian Vignols, author of that new book, A Delicate Wildness, by writer Ailish Nguivna, Luke Dodd, who was a friend of Thompson's and is living in London in Camden Town, close to where the Thompsons lived, and historian Roy Foster, who also knew David Thompson and is an admirer of his work as a writer and sometimes historian. I suppose in, in different ways, each of you came across David Thompson uh, and came to know his work and the man himself through your own professional lives. Um, Julian, could I begin with you as the author of this Life of David Thompson? When and how did you first come across his work? Of all things, it was in Fred Hanna's bookshop. I was in Fred Hanna's one day, I think it was 1985, it was well after Woodward had come out. On the remainder was this hardback universe, the American edition, which hadn't exactly taken America by storm, but had this marvellous picture of this reedy, atmospheric picture. And I said, I must give this a try. It was something like two pounds. I started reading and I got engrossed. And I was so taken with it. At the end, I started reading it again, which is very unusual for me. And also the, my main impulse was to say, oh, the people in this book must be still alive. There must be some of them still here. I have to go down. So I took a day off work uh, and uh, went out to the, as you, do, as you went, did at that time, went out to, um, out to Maynooth and hitchhiked to uh, Carrick on Shannon and found my way out and knocked on the door of the house. And that was it. And I met John and May Malone, who bought, bought the house. I got to then meet Winnie the Cook in Woodbrook and various characters from it. And every time I go down that avenue, it still gets, I still get a flutter. I still get a, a heartache uh, because of what he did in that book. And as I say, it was what other writers had failed to do in, for the previous part of my life. And I pick it up. I keep picking it up again every few years. And of course, you, you made a, a rightly celebrated radio documentary, The Story of Woodbrook. It's very fortunate that you did because you, you captured Thompson's voice um, while, he was, while he was an old man, but he was still able to remember. And I mean, it's a very valuable record of all that he said in, in that documentary. What was it like meeting him? It was like meeting a, a, a great a rock star that you always admired, like Dylan or, or Van Morrison. Or I mean, it was it was just oh, and and yet it was he was an elderly old man, but you could see the glint in the eye that that Heaney keeps referring to it. This, this impishness. It was still some of it there, although he was rather elderly for you know he at that stage he was he was seventy two or seventy three, but it was fantastic to meet him. I was totally in awe. I was nervous. I was shaking. I met him in the arts club when we did the interview for him. and then I met him again after that and he was anxious to get down to uh, so I had to drive him to the uh, to the Chester Beauty Libraries was. He hadn't he had to get to the Chester Beauty Library that morning he and Martina uh, and I can imagine him really taking in the Chester Beauty as nobody else could. Roy Foster, did you come to David Thompson through Woodbrook as so many of us did? Yes, in the first in the, in the first instance, I, I read. I think I, I I reviewed Woodbrook when it was when it was published. I think in the Times Literary Supplement, and that of course was in the seventies. But then I went to live in 1981. I went to live in Kentish Town, very near Camden Town, and our close neighbours were a wonderful Bohemian couple called um, Jimmy and Diane Jameson, and they were very close friends of David and Martina. So we met them quite quickly through them, and they were immensely kind and nice to us. I remember they lent us their house in Norfolk for a holiday one summer when we were young and didn't have much money. And I used to go and see him a lot in the latter years, sometimes in hospital where he increasingly was. 
Luke Todd, the hinterland of, of Woodbrook, South Roscommon, Carrick and Shannon, Boyle, uh, an area you know well and to which you, you have close links, Strokestown, obviously. How, how did you come to meet and know David Thompson? Well, I suppose growing up or at school, there was an awareness of Woodbrook as one of the, the kind of classic texts about that part of the world. I went to school in Boyle. And um, then for about 10 years, in the, from the mid-80s, I worked at um, Strokestown House in County Roscommon. And when the place was ready to be open to the public, um, it's a, a house that's obviously was visited by David Thompson fairly regularly when he was at Woodbrook. I phoned him up one night. Martina told me afterwards they were in bed. They went to bed very early and asked him if he would come. And he kept saying, oh, write me a letter, write me a letter. I answer every letter I get. And uh, he duly arrived, I think it was 1987, with Martina and came to Strokestown and performed the kind of official ceremony as it was on the steps. David made copious reference to the famine in his um, talk that day, indeed upsetting members of the Pakenhamahan family. But I suppose in, you know, thinking about sort of doing this today, I I kind of realise in a way that what Woodbrook represented, the book and the way David put together, was kind of a template or a a blueprint for what we tried to do at Strokestown, which was use the house there to reflect back on itself. And he got it immediately. I sort of, from that point then, you know, there were firm friends, even though David died um, a a little over a year later, and Martina died uh, just a year ago, but um, and Martina in particular was a very close friend. For Martina, of course, uh, David Thompson's wife and and the yes. great love of, of of his life. Yeah, and I um, mean it's true to say you can't really have any discussion of David without Martina. Phoebe gets all the headlines, but um, Phoebe, apart from being David's first love, was also a wonderful literary device. <laughs> so, and I remember at Strokestown, somebody showing him a picture of Phoebe, the one that had, I think is in your book, Julian, you know, that had been found of Phoebe in the stables outside. And he looked at it and he just laughed and everybody <laughs> was shocked because everybody thought it would be a great watershed moment. But, you know, from the time they first met in the building we're sitting in now, not very far away from it, it was kind of love at first sight. She was the person who encouraged him to leave the BBC in 1969 and write. And of course, she, she, was a, 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 she was an artist in her, own, in her own right. She was not only a muse and an enabler under protection and his great love, she was a very distinguished artist. I have some work of hers, and Luke has too, and indeed Seamus and Mary Heaney have lovely things of hers. She was a very successful etcher and painter and eventually a potter. She also wrote poetry, very good poetry, and she was a great beauty. She was a stunner and, she, and something of a femme fatale with a slightly little difficile Austrian edge to her. She was absolutely riveting and he was immensely proud of her and immensely in love with her, I think, all his life. She, he described her as his best editor. Um, Ailish, I, I think you studied Thompson's work in, in UCD and um, obviously you, you would have had a, a great interest in his writing on and inspired by folk tradition. I mean, what, what is it in his writing that is so, so particular and, and so resonant? Well, um, yeah, I first came across him um, in, the, in the library of the Folklore Department in UCD, where the National Folklore Archive is, and his books were on the shelves for student reading. He is folklore collector, I suppose, more than a folklorist. And um, 
I remember when I first read Woodbrook, it wasn't because uh, it was prescribed for me or anything. I was just generally exploring the library there. And I think for me, it is a book which brings together the um, technique of the folklorist or the ethnographer in describing in precise and exact and loving detail what things are like, what houses are like, what fields are like, what um, wells are like, how you cut the hay, how you do this and that. But it's also obviously intensely literary. So it kind of combines the two sides of my personality as as well as David Thompson's. I, re- I remember sitting, I, I mean, I read it in, in the library sitting in the sunshine and it seemed kind of golden coloured library in those days with lovely oak table and oak bookshelves and so on and David Thompson's Woodbrook is kind of saturated in sunshine as well I just remember that magic or charm about it yeah Would you say he had been an influence on you at all as a writer? Perhaps he will be now because I've been reading. It's great to go back to a book like that. I remember reading it and coming away with, I think I was most, the romantic feel of it as much as the actual story of the the love story. You know, I was reading it as a young person. You, you, you read in a different way at that stage than you do when you're, when you're, when you're much older. So what I remembered of it was the Phoebe, the relationship with Phoebe and the kind of delicate muslin-covered, whimsical sort of feeling that he manages to convey in his lovely prose um, from that. That was what, what stayed with me as much as anything else. No, I could have learned a lot from it because I think it's technically quite a... It, that's why we all love it so much. It works very well. It's nicely put together. Um, he knows how to compose a book as well as write a sentence. Um, so, so there's plenty to be learned about writing from this book. The the books because I think Nairn and Darkness and Light is a, is uh, also a, a near masterpiece, um, almost on a level with Woodbrook, and the collage of memory and history, often quite hard history, mixed in with the golden, as Eilish said, the sort of golden drenched memories of of youth, and the sensuality of these books struck me very deeply and rereading them for this program they've struck me all over again Julian tell us a little bit about about David Thompson's background you know his family his parents and and the social and physical landscapes he inherited um, India Scotland London there's a great deal there in the mix which I suppose in some ways explains something of the complexity of the man yeah um his father, of course, was uh, in the Indian Army. Uh, his and his father and mother were first cousins. Uh, the Thompson and uh, Finlay family were rather connected uh, in Nairn. And of course, uh, his his uncle Robert, who he kind of in later life um, was rather critical of. Uh, his uncle Robert was a chancellor in Lloyd George's government. He was moved sideways in 1919. It appears he was sent to the Court of Justice. And uh, Lord Birkenhead got the job, and of course Lord Birkenhead then became one of the negotiators of the treaty. But that's the background. And then, of course, Thompson, uh, very much drawn to the ordinary people of Nairn in the Fisher Town. He was born, of course, in Quetta, which is now part of Pakistan, was part of the Raj at that stage. And it was only about five months old when he came 
to uh, back to Nairn. And they lived in Derbyshire then in London, but he was sent to Nairn famously between he, when he was 11 and 14 as a cure for this eyesight difficulty he had. And darkness was the prescription. And of course, there's a marvellous description in Nairn of Darkness and Light of, of this visit by his mother, and he doesn't know quite how to handle this. And he's reflecting on this as a 70-year-old. But that's the background. Then he, of course, came to Ireland as a tutor to two girls. He became a farmer. And then, of course, he got absorbed totally in everything to do with Ireland. <coughs> uh, then he got a great break in 1943 through a school friend, the famous mercurial figure, Lawrence Gilliam, who ran this famous features department when radio features was bigger than television probably is now uh, and he, he had a Danish wife who'd gone to school with Thompson and then his his radio career took off. And he, he made some wonderful radio programs. We'll, we'll talk about those later but it, and there's a great opening line in, in your book which is a quote from Nairn and Darkness yeah. and Light where his grandmother uh, pronounces very fiercely on the Irish you know, saying uh, and he said otherwise she was a very gentle woman she said they should all be hanged um, and it's, it's hard to believe that someone from that background would come to have such a deep love for and understanding of Ireland. But he's in repudiation of that background from very early on. From yes. the age of 10, he's learning Gaelic. He's declaring he's a Scots nationalist. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's setting himself against, against the Scottish administrative imperialist haute bourgeoisie, which he comes so intensely from. Mm-hmm. And I think the love of Ireland as it is often for Scots radicals and indeed for some English radicals, is part of that repudiation. Yes, and I, I, I agree. I agree, but I, I think he had this. Um, he was uncomfortable with it, even a, a, as a teenager. I think, but I, I think that he he more rejected it in later life. And I think I think he regretted not having a better relationship with his father. His father being very, and yet his father became very I mean, involved in the Hampstead Garden suburb idea. He wasn't as imperial as he might have seemed to David when he... Yeah. But I, I think what Roy is saying is absolutely right, that he turned his back. I mean, the sort of Oxford historian bit of him repudiated the kind of establishment that he came from. However, there was something else in David's character, which maybe, I mean, obviously informs Nairn and Woodbrook, but is probably most pronounced in the book about Camden Town, where he spent many hours each day in the local pubs with people who either lived in Arlington House or who were homeless, largely Scots and Irish working class, the kind of people who were left over from the Navi generation. And the extraordinary thing is that the way in which David writes about them isn't in a kind of learned way to peel back. or you know, There's nothing patronising ever about it. These were his actual friends that he spent time with and whose funerals he went to. Yeah. So there's something more complex going on than just a, an intellectual turning uh, away and from... And could we just add to that, uh, Luke, is, is the fact, of course, that he was so sympathetic to the Kirkwoods, the Anglo-Irish thing when he came here, who were, you know, not a million miles away from, from the family he'd rejected in the sense... You and know, absolutely, and how great... understanding he was about the Maxwells. Yes. You know, how on the one hand they adored the Kirkwoods and on the other hand hated them fundamentally. Mm. And the, were the Maxwells, sitting, the people who, yeah, who the worked, people who worked the farm, farm like, and eventually yeah. actually came to own it. But Luke, did, did David Thompson talk to you about those early years and, and, and those passions, you know, political, historical, social and, and indeed I suppose some of the, the quieter intimacies of, of, of his heart? You know, did he talk to you about those memories of, of childhood and youth? 
Um, no, never specifically, because I suppose he wrote about it. It was there for everybody to see. But what I do remember about him, and I spent a bit of time with him um, in Camden Town, in those pubs, is just that extraordinary openness and the notebooks as well that were always in these large pockets that, you know, usually any coat he had on. And, and again, this comes out in Camden Town. He looked far worse than many of the people who were homeless. <laughs> um, he's so tattered. Um, this extraordinary openness that clearly informed every part of his life from his early years and whether it was the the near blindness that turned him inwards or something else I, I'm not sure but he he had this incredible vulnerability and I think maybe understood in a way that if a few things hadn't happened like Martina in his life he may well have been much more like those men he hung out with around Camden Town. Uh, Roy, if I could add something to what Lucas just said, he did in fact talk to me about his childhood when he was beginning to write Nairn. And I have a note in, in fact, he wrote a note in my copy of In Camden Town where he says, inscribed to Roy in Maidavale Hospital, with thanks for helping me at the start of my next book, December 1983. And he'd been talking about blindness and how he'd been almost educated to be blind. You know, he was being taught to read in Braille and all the rest of it. And how he fought against this and how losing his sight, in a sense, shaped his view of the world and how he'd like to write about that. And I think I'd certainly encourage him to write about that. And that, of course, is is the theme that runs through Nairn and makes it a more unified book than in Camden Town, which I agree with Luke is a marvellous portrait, intermittently marvellous portrait of Camden Town when it was a much more squalid and less trendy place than it is now. It's a jerky, uneven book about writer's block as much about anything else. Uh, Julian, you'd mentioned uh, the fact that Thompson, after he left Ireland, uh, joined the BBC as a, as a producer. That was 1943, he was 29. And as you said, you know, the BBC radio at that stage was almost something of an oasis of creativity. People like uh, Louis McNeese working there. Uh, and of course, Thompson went on to make memorable and, and original work. Let's hear Sean McRaymond on David Thompson and his work as a radio producer with the BBC. I first met David Thompson when he came to Ireland as a member of one of the first teams that came from the BBC in the years immediately after the Second World War. Mobile recording had just brought a new and uh, fertile dimension to broadcasting. Now, around about that time also, BBC introduced the third programme. Due to that and to other developments, there was created a, a new interest in and a demand for kinds of material singing, traditional music, and folkways of all kinds. And he gave his listeners, in his recreating of the natural world and of the peoples in it, great richness in the voices of men and women who remembered, and also of those who, like himself, were collecting the fragments. Not just Country Magazine, but also his portrait of the great famine which he did and a marvellous series, The Irish Storyteller. It was, of course, for a radio series that he quarried first the material that went into the unforgettable people of the sea. And I have no doubt that much of what he put into what eventually appeared on the printed page owed a great deal to his service to the living world, which filled his days as a broadcaster. 
the late Sean McRaymond there himself, of course, a legendary figure of radio, television and letters paying tribute to David Thompson. Um, Roy Foster, one of, of the BBC programmes that I suppose really stands out from the many remarkable programmes that Thompson made was The Great Hunger. Uh, his drama documentary from 1948 on on the famine in Ireland. And um, it's remarkable to to think of him doing that and bringing this almost unwritten history of Ireland to public attention at that time. Yes, the books, uh, Nairn and and Woodbrook as well, are collages, as, as I think I said before, of history and memory. And the history, as I also said, is hard history. You know, I, I mean that in the sense of it's quarried out of uh, government reports, it's quarried out of contemporary sources, it's quarried out of correspondences, sometimes a mite indigestibly, you might think. But he is, I think, one of the most, um, and here I'd also appeal to Luke, I think he's one of the most vivid and influential writers about the famine, who places it centrally in social memory when he writes about uh, life in the Boyle country in Roscommon. And the radio programme, of course, also, I think, reflects that. In that, as in many other ways, he's he's ahead of his time. I think the way that he makes history vivid through a personal twist and the extent to which he's prepared to go into real historical archival and, and primary sources is striking. The, the BBC was, I think in its great days then, and um, gave him his head, as it did other legendary producers like McNeese and Reggie Smith around the same time. And David was certainly um, well up there with them. Luke, would you concur on, on that that reading of, of Thompson's interpretation of history and his placing of, of the famine at, at the centre of, of our almost of Irish experience? Well, I think it's very obvious from when you read Woodbrook and in his conversations with the people who worked on the farm and in the general area that he came to realise that the, the famine had cast a huge shadow. Um, Sean McRaven there mentioned the book The People of the Sea, which came out of the radio series Thompson, made to the BBC and published in 1954. A remarkable book in, in many ways and one that I suspect anyone who opens it for a first time will return to time and again. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. Um, it, it, based on the research which he did for the radio programme, he writes a kind of travelogue um, in describing his journey around Ireland, Mayo, Kerry, various places, the Aran Islands, also Scotland, Shetland and Orkney, on a journey in quest of stories about the sea, which of course are, are extremely numerous in all these places where um, folk beliefs um, about seals, about people who are descended from seals, of marriages between seals and humans, of seals who can talk and so on are very numerous and um, I think what's especially um, striking about this particular book is that in it Thompson combines kind of a personal narrative with the um, documentation of the material he collected in this case the, the, the great le- the stories the legends about seals and sea creatures and so on and so forth and in a way you can see the template for Woodbrook already 
beginning to evolve. But this is uh, quite an unusual sort of book. It's it's different from um, a collection of legends of seals as it would be compiled by a folklorist, where the folklorist at that stage would have stayed out of the narrative themselves. But he puts himself into it, which is in fact what um, scholars would do nowadays because they know that it's a lie to pretend that you're not actually there <laughs> collecting the stuff. So um, it's it's f- from just from a folkloristic point of view, it's very interesting in that way. But another th- in another aspect of the book that um, I find really striking and that I think displays, it typifies something which Thompson does all the time also in the Woodrow, also in Woodbrook is that he tells, you know, a kind of magical, mystical story about a seal um, who becomes uh, human when he loses his skin and so on. But he combines this with quite accurate descriptions of the hunt for the seal. The And the, the, the horrible, it's a horrible description of how the seals, seals are skinned, even um, that they're, they're stunned, but the fishermen don't quite know. Apparently, it's very hard to know whether a seal is dead or alive. He doesn't flinch from that kind of harsh reality of life. He's completely unsentimental about it. This is what happens. Like the famine stories in Woodbrook, you know, he tells some pretty ghastly uh, stories that would make your hair stand on end. (laughs) And they're kind of blended into all this. And does it with the hair as well. (laughs) (laughs) The hair, the leaping hair, which he did in collaboration with um, the folklorist George Ewart Evans, is a different kind of book. Um, it's 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 it's. I think Evans's hand. Yeah, I just meant it had that same. <laughs> but like it's a, a but sentimental thing about that's a great thing of it. nature. It's mm. it's well, yeah. Well, his his um, his interest in um, you know natural history. He he knows and documents um, the biological features of animals very well. That's very much there in the hair, and uh, which is a great great book. Although. I kind of wonder, this is a question to which I don't know the answer. I'm sure the answer is known, you know, how the collaboration on that book worked out. It's much more uh, folkloristic, sort of a scholarly book than than the People of the Sea, which is valuable. I think they I think they did a bit of a Lennon McCartney on it, you know, that he did sections and he did sections oh, and they, really? they passed it between right, each other. Right. Um that's that's my understanding of it. And you can see some of you can see David's stuff is very much uh, he talks about it himself in the third person he mentioned Scotland. We can't mention uh, the leaping hair without mentioning of course where the title of this book comes from A Delicate Wildness because that's from James Heaney's wonderful yeah, wonderful and description. Because he of David Thompson was uh, the poem I use in the book um, is of course the poem where, where he talks about uh, in Nairn and Darkness and Light and, and, and Roy and, and Luke will probably remember this where he, he was perplexed as a lot of us are about the idea the concept of the Holy Ghost so of course he imagined it as, as a white hair leaping across the heather and of course, uh, in his marvelous way, uh, Heaney turns that around on Thompson himself and talks about him, you know, weave, weaving and ducking through life. Why don't we listen to that poem read by Seamus Heaney himself? And this is just a salute to his his own hair-like spirit, David. It's called the Spring, and it's quite self-explanatory. It comes from information in his book, The Leaping Hair, which he wrote with George Ewart Evans. The last three words, the shake, the heart, the Jew hammer, the far-eyed, are names for the hair from a poem that he found in Middle English. Choose one set of tracks and track a hair until the prints stop just like that in snow. End of the line. Smooth drifts. 
Where did she go? Back in her tracks, of course, and took a spring, yards off to the side. Clean break, no scent or sign. She landed in her form and then ate snow. Which is why Pliny thought the fur goes white, and why one friend imagined the Holy Ghost as a great white hair on the summit of a ridge, then sprung himself at last, still weaving and dodging, herring it out to the very end, the shake the heart, the dew hammer, the far-eyed. Seamus Heaney there. Luke. To go back to something Eilish said a minute ago, the, the, what I find extraordinary is that even when he's writing about extraordinarily bleak moments in history or particular memories that people have, the style that he uses never falters. The style is absolutely consistent throughout the books. Um, you know, and, and in many ways, you know, I kept thinking, rereading again for this programme, you know, and he's very close to McGahern in that sense. And McGahern indeed was a very big fan of David Thompson and Woodbrook in particular. That sense of, um, you know, the the writer almost writing themselves out of, you know, style being eschewed. You know, the, 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 I've read something that John McGahern wrote recently about, um, you know, that he, um, quoting Flaubert, that the artist should be like God in nature, um, absolutely present everywhere, but not visible at all. And and David Thompson was an extraordinary stylist, um, and that's sometimes forgotten because the content of each of the books is so potent, but he was an extraordinary writer. Are there particular examples of the style that, that stand out for you? For instance, from Woodbrook, are there scenes that, that you carry with you even when you haven't read the book for some time? No, I mean, Woodbrook, is because the, the pace and the style is so consistent, it kind of doesn't matter where you open it. I mean, there isn't, it doesn't have that kind of um, modulation or it's absolutely pure. But I was, you know, I reread the, the Camden Town book and that finishes with, you know, and it's written as kind of um, diary form because, again, it's a lot about growing old and not being able to write. And um, there's three, the three last diary entries in it. One is, it's again on St. Patrick's Day and talking about Martina and um, how he taught her how to take a bath and how she liked to get into bed wet rather than use a towel. That was one of the little vignettes that's left with it. And then going into a pub on the way back from a funeral um, and wishing he hadn't because there was a really offensive graffiti on the bathroom wall. And then the last bit, you know, classic David, about walking past Camden Town Tube and a man who was cleaning the streets. There was a glove on the ground, a beautiful black glove, and the man just shoveled it up with all the other rubbish. And, you know, it was this sort of symbol of so much in David's life. He, you know, he wanted, you know, whether it was looking at women's hair or the memory of Phoebe or whatever, it was, for him, the glove was loaded with so much meaning that was just, you know, discounted immediately. The passage I remember from in Camden Town is one of many where he replicates extraordinarily somebody else's language, where he's talking to a retired policeman in the Edinburgh Castle pub and the policeman describes delivering a baby from a girl standing up against a railing in a pouring wet night in Royal College Street. And it is the most vivid, intense, idiomatic description. You can hear the man's voice and you can see the description of the policeman's cape, which the girl yeah, lies down on. And do, do you remember that piece too? I, I, the piece I really liked, one of the many things in Compton I really liked was, was where he, he has in this regret when he goes to the funeral of his friend Davy, who's been buried in, in a pauper's grave, presumably, and, and he goes along and he is full of all this regret that he didn't take care of him more, he didn't value his friendship. And, you know, he's... 
I think it's a very again it's it's more of his honesty it's uh, it's, it's very but uh, but the, the other passage that really struck me in Camden Town was that clearly lots of people came to the door all the time for money because David was and Martina were very generous and one day somebody he didn't know came and um this person was losing his eyesight and David he kept pushing David for money and forcing it and trying to make him feel sympathy for him and David shut the door on him and he said he didn't want to give money in that situation where he was being made to feel sorry for somebody and then you realise all the other sort of encounters in the book where he ends up giving 50 pence or a pound or whatever it is these are his friends you know there's no guilt or there's no there's nothing else informing it he gives money because he has it Eilish, I think there's something that stood out for you as well. Oh well, in terms of his of of his actual writing, um, I think he's got a fantastic sense of rhythm, and that that's so it, it reads so naturally and spontaneously, and it probably is that I think that lures you. I think that's part of the magic of his writing. Um, a, a passage that I came across in the Leaping Hare, which, as a, in my view, is probably the least overtly lyrical of his books, still exemplifies. The wonderful poetic, in the very best sense of the word, uh, uh, poetic quality of his language, where he's describing just the hair. I think this captures what David Thompson can do. If you approach a rabbit cautiously, he will run towards his burrow immediately he sees you. A hare will wait, watching you until you're almost upon her, and then with one bound, long and high, starts leaping away, her hind legs reaching out before her forelegs at each leap, her ears erect, even in flight. The beauty of the hare is in her speed, her graceful turning this way and that, the subtle wide circles she makes in her flight to elude her pursuer and leave no constant line of scent. I mean, this is, I presume, a totally accurate account of the flight of the hare. And he kept, you know, the the rhythm of the sentence, the long looping, long sentence gets that. It's fantastic yeah, writing. It's beautiful and, writing. And, and he does that all the time. Both what Eilish yeah. and what, what um, what uh, Luke says uh, show that he is in fact a poet in prose I think yes indeed and he yeah. has this poetic ear which is never sentimental or overcoloured but the ending of Nairn is heartbreaking where they leave to go to London and he's leaving this magic land of cocaine this land of childhood and he suddenly produces a list of sort of proverbs of what you do every month of the year. Very Scots, in January warm your hands and sweep the snow from the lintel, in February warm your hands and feet and dig dig the snow from the lintel. Goes through the year and then at the end writes, in September, that's when they go to London, in September turn your eyes away from the green and yellow land, the winds and heather, sea and sand, and hear no more the birds. Let the cock crow no more. Let the reek of the train and the city cover you like night. It's a fantastic again, ending poetry, to that book. And that's yeah. the ending. Uh, can I just? <laughs> uh, Luke mentioned, you know, you can you can open Woodbrook anywhere, and Eilish, and Eilish mentioned, you know, uh, that that you read books differently when you're when you're older. And I opened Woodbrook the other day again, and of course you come across a little gem, and I just read it, it's a little it's about wells, and there's a lot of well well references to wells, but. There was a holy well, St. Lazarus well, and a cliff-like bank that sloped steeply to the waters of Loch Key, often rough, often still as a mirror. Phoebe and I went there on bicycles, and sometimes I went alone. It became holy to me, but in a private way, 
others worship there together, crawling under a flat rock to be cured of madness or toothache or anything. It was a tiny Lourdes once a year, and they shared the same religion, not knowing that the well and the rock were holy long before Christ. And we, without their community, and as ignorant as they were of the distant past, with no religious tradition of our own, were suddenly silenced when we came there. It's it's wonderful. Again, I, I always think of, of McGarren more or less in, in the same breath as, as David Thompson and uh, not just because of the terrain, because but because of, of their insights into into the people as well of, of, of that area. And he, here's McGarren talking about that, that trickiness almost of getting to know people and putting some of that on the page. I had the advantage of or disadvantage of knowing nearly all the people in Woodbrook as real people. And the disadvantages of that is that um, no individual experiences of uh, any person is the same. And as well as that is I think that the literary quality of this book is strange and mysterious and completely individual. It um, is uh, even strange in the English tradition of writing about Ireland. I know of no voice like it. There is no savage indignation, no exasperated tolerance, no dehumanising farce, no superior tone. It has a rare sweetness and gentleness. And yet, it is written with the clear intelligence and accuracy of love. I think, as he says in the book himself, that if Woodbrook and he began in friendship, they ended in love. John McGarren there. And of course, uh, Julian, you evoked um, the spirit of Woodbrook and uh, of the place of, of the book uh, of Thompson himself. Um, people will remember the, the evocative theme music for your radio documentary, The Story of Woodbrook, Mihalo Sudowans. Woodbrook adapted from the traditional tune, The Plains of Boyle, and played by Mihalo Sudowan. Like most things in everybody's life, it was chance. Um, it happened that a cousin of my mother's was a painter, and they found Anne Finley as a teacher of painting to Phoebe, you see. Now then, that went on, and I didn't know the curves at all, but I knew my mother's cousin. And then Mrs. Kirkwood, Ivy Kirkwood, she said she wanted to find somebody to teach the children, teach Phoebe private lessons. So that Anne Finley recommended me. I was then an undergraduate at Oxford. And also, I hadn't very much money in every vacation. I took private pupils in, in various subjects in, in London. And so that's how it happened, that I was asked by Mrs. Kirkwood to give lessons so many times a week in their house in St. John's Wood, you see. Well then, in 1932, they invited me over to Ireland where they were going to spend the summer, you see. And the Oxford term is very short, the summer term. The vacation is, I think, three months. They were supposed to work during it, but <laughs> I don't think many people did work. So then, they brought me over with them to Woodbrook. That's the beginning of that story, yes. 
I don't think I can I can say what made me write it. I think that all books and ideas for writing suddenly come into my head. Certainly, I couldn't have written it any nearer to the time. I don't think. I think you have to be away from from what you're writing about by a number of years. David Thompson on Woodbrook. Julian Vignoles, um, you, Ailish talked earlier about this, the feeling of this, almost the saturation of light in, in Woodbrook and her memory as she read it. Um, but of course, there's a darkness as well uh, in in the book and in Thompson's own own life and a darkness that maybe allowed him and is partly maybe to do with, with those problems with his eyesight where he's mm. seeing things close up and th- that's how he reads and sees things. But it's, it's, there's, there's a shadow in right through Woodbrook as well, despite the light. And I think maybe that's what, in part, what gives it its power. Yes. I mean, there's the famous episode towards the end of the book where he throws away all these notebooks that he had accumulated over the years, part because of his melancholy, because of his you know, depression, which had been, I think, detected in, in, in him very early in his life by his parents. And part of the reason, uh, I think, to, to send him north to, to, to Nairn. But I think there's, yeah, and I think, there, I, mean, I suppose, on other levels of the other dark thing, and I think back to the, to the Maxwells, that he has this friendship with the Maxwells, yet he knows that they're secretly plotting to keep the price of the estate down when the Kirkwoods want to sell it. So I think there's all those competing things in it. Yeah, there's a sadness, I think. There's an awful, there's a big sadness in the book. Uh, I, I think I, I think David's lifelong um, battle with depression was a very debilitating. I mean, he was, lithi- he was on prescribed lithium most of his life and mm. occasionally went off it in order to give himself a kind of a high. And um, at times like that, he was very difficult to be around and he was um, incarcerated on m- numerous occasions. But um, I think that also, infor- or maybe that's also some of the darkness in him, apart from the, the physical darkness to do with his eyes. Um, he really could never be sure of his mind and he had a few very major breakdowns but I think that again is what made him this extraordinarily open person and there's an extraordinary a very moving scene Julian in, in your book from his life where he, he meets a nurse called Mary Pogue mm. uh, when he's a patient in a psychiatric hospital in London and it turns out that she's the daughter of the postman from Carrick and Shannon who used to deliver and collect mail from Woodbrook an astonishing coincidence, at the very least, uh, and a meeting that that would help inspire his writing. Yeah, it's interesting because it's where the book started. I was introduced to Mary in, in Carrick and Shannon last at the at, at the McGarren School, and she told me this story. And then, of course, it all and that was the start that that lovely story. And and she was terribly discreet as well. And and you know, the way he he became alive when he started was when she said Carrick and Shannon. And because again, it's almost that notion of in in a journey into darkness. Yes. Uh, for him, he found this source of light and it's something that brought him back to to the source, to that inspiration in, in, in Woodbrook, brought him right back and full circle. I mean, I, I must say I found that deeply moving, uh, as, as I found a great deal in the book and his, his openness 
at his frailty, I suppose, comes through so, so strongly in the book. Matched, must be said, with a with kind of hard-headed determination at times. Yeah, and the, the, the other thing is that I, I spent a lot of time, obviously, with his papers in, in uh, National Library in Scotland. And there's lots of, yeah, there's lots of very dark stuff and very, and you knew, you know, the, the dilemma is how how you use it and where you put it and and how, how far you go into that. And you want, you know, the fact that Martina had, uh, had left all his papers, everything. That was a, a dilemma that you, in a way, you know, you want to tell the truth and she wanted the truth told about a person. So it does include very dark things. But the great brilliance, as you say, comes out of that. Um, Luke, I suppose we don't normally think of, of Thompson as a f- writer of fiction, but, but some of his earliest stabs at writing were in that form. And he published a number of, of novels, all with, with echoes of the autobiographical. How significant or memorable is, the, is that fiction? And then, of course, there's the work for children as well. He produced a novel called Daniel and also another one called A Break in the Sun, um, they were both published in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s. And the, A Break in the Sun is very, very autobiographical. It's about um, somebody who goes off for the BBC or, well, it's UNESCO, I think, to Africa to make a programme and ends up in an insane asylum and then tries to find his way back to Europe. And it's paralleled with a story about a woman who's clearly Martina, who's back in London. And, um, you know, he, he spends a, a week in a brothel as well. And when he came back, uh, he was completely crazy at that point. I mean, Martina still had the drawings he was making at that point in the house. And none of those books are that successful. They seem quite derivative. The earlier one, Daniel, has elements of sort of early Beckett about it, but it's not in any way realised in, you know, in the, the, the voice he sort of began to forge in the the books about the seal and the hair and then that new form effectively which he developed in Woodbrook and Nairn I mean which you know was I think probably a new form until the likes of Seaball came along yes. and I, or you know you, there are elements of it in Robert McFarland as well sort of melding of lots of different things together I think the strongest of the three fiction books is, is the, the last one Dante Part Stays yes which is set in Camden and it's very clever I think and it's very witty and it's obviously very autobiographical as well. And he, he falls in love with this woman he meets who sweeps the streets in Camden. Um, but I, I, think it's, I think it's a very strong book of, the, of those. Uh, I mean, interestingly, I was thinking in reading about, I wonder if David was writing in Alive Now. Yes. I, mm. I'm not sure these books would even get a publisher. I, it's I, extraordinary. I it's so changed would. now. Yeah. Um, can, can I ask all of you, you know, looking at his work again uh, for this programme and Julian, obviously, and for you in the last few years writing, writing this book, um, but looking at, at Thompson's work, how do you consider it now? I mean, Luke, you were saying there, and I, I think you're right, that he, in a sense he almost seemed to anticipate in books like Woodbrook and Nairn, uh, the likes of Sebald and, and, and a style of writing that's more common now. But did you glean fresh insights in, in going back to, to look over it again? What I came away with was just the sort of realisation now that I'm much older than, you know, <laughs> I read them along, is just what an extraordinary writer he was. It was that simple. It doesn't matter, like I say, where you open the books, um, you'll be held. Roy, what about you, what about you when you, you, when you reread uh, Thompson now? What, what do you come away with? Well, I would echo Luke in that I'm, I read him in a slightly different way. I am more impressed than I ever was by his gifts as a writer. But I think what strikes me is the high-octane sensuality of the way he uses language and, of course, of the subject matter as well. 
the themes of, well, not infantile, but awakening sexuality in Nairn, the way he uses dreams, um, the way that every object around him is lit up with a kind of extrasensory sharpness and sensuality, and he can feel things as he writes about them, which I suppose you might crudely link to his uh, sight impairment. But it also reminds me, and if I'd said this to him, he would have yelped with laughter. He had a wonderful yelp. It reminds me of Proust and the way Proust's early novels, especially the early novels of The Great Sequence, are about a child feeling awakening all around him and through this extrasensory sensuality of touch and feel and observation. I think he is one of the most extraordinary observers in prose and as I've said before it's a poetic level of observation that you're encountering here. English, I suspect that there's a generation, a younger generation uh, of readers who are not familiar with, with Thompson and one would hope that that they will turn and and open the, the pages of these books Indeed. and find him. Indeed, and I think um, that's one of the um, things that uh, Julian's uh, biography will do. Will um, I hadn't read it since the 1970s um, until I read your, your, your book, Julian. And um, and I went back to it. I was rather sceptical going back to it. Uh, I thought, hmm, all this romantic stuff, 18-year-old student from Oxford comes over with a posh accent and, you know, falls in love with Ireland and we all keel over with delight and um, and uh, I wondered about that is that kind of just us being post-colonial at that stage or um, and also of course the, the romance with Phoebe like this girl is 11 or 12 and he's 18 and so on but I have to say when I read Woodbrook again I was completely enthralled by it all over again I mean he makes everything texture the relationship the it's a, it is it is a love story but it's really I think about falling in love with the big house, with the countryside, with the landscape, with Ireland. And the girl, Phoebe is, is just part of that whole thing. Um, his heightened sensibility, yeah, there's a sort of a, there's a, he, he, he's a kind, got a synesthetic imagination. Everything seems to come together for him, blend together history and geography and people and stories and so on and that all comes through yeah i i, w- I would i would really hope the a new generation will will be brought to this book as it ha- is described by you and by many people heaney and so on he reminds me a bit of heaney actually it's it's one of the small gems it's kind of like the vicar of wakefield it's 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 a cla- it's a minor classic of irish literature Julian, for you, obviously, this book has been an act of, of love and paying homage to somebody who, who you greatly admired. Um, for you now, thinking of Thompson and, and the work, and as was again in this year of anniversaries for him, I presume you would really like to see new readers come to the work and, and see the power. Yeah, I was in Boyle and Cryan's Creighton's is called now, the, the, the pub he loved in Boyle uh, at a launch last week. And somebody said, this should be on the Leaving Cert course. It's an obvious point. <laughs> but I mean, I could sum it up, uh, uh, Roy, and all of you have done eloquently. I'd sum it up by saying, Woodbrook is my favourite book of all time. David is my favourite writer. That's, you know, with due respects to all the greats. Uh, and I think that I see it in, in just looking at the text of, of Heaney's poem again, the glee of boyhood still alive and kicking. You know, it's also that thing, and Eilish referred to it, 18-year-olds do fancy 11-year-olds. We have to admit these things. Human nature is there, and, and he asserted it, and Heaney picked that up very well. 
we've been paying tribute uh, to David Thompson and his work on tonight's programme. Thanks to Julian Vinyals, Eilish Nguyvna, Luke Dodd and Roy Foster. A Delicate Wildness, The Life and Loves of David Thompson, 1914 to 1988 by Julian Vinyals is published by the Lilliput Press. On next week's Arts Tonight, I'll be talking to Stephen Ennis, author of After the Titanic, A Life of Derek Mahan. Join me next Monday night at 10. Till then, thanks for being with us. Good night. The various recordings on this evening's edition of Arts Tonight were made by Joe Mulholland, Julian Vignoles and Philip Donnellan. Seamus Heaney reading Late in the Day was from the RTE CD box set. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, was produced by Cleon and the Onloon.